Prepare your ears, humans. Happy, sad, confused begins now. Today on Happy, Sad, Confused, cinematographer Robert Richardson on his collaborations with Martin Scorsese, Oliver Stone, and Quentin Tarantino. Hey guys, I'm Josh Horowitz. Welcome to another edition of Happy, Sad, Confused. I'm Josh, you're you, and the guest today is Robert Richardson. Now, this is a big one. This is a big first for Happy, Sad, Confused. And as I say to Robert in this conversation, I'm glad... If anyone was going to be the first cinematographer, director of photography that was going to be on the show, it was him. Um, We've obviously talked to many, many uh, great directors, some writers, a ton of actors, but never a cinematographer, which is obviously one of the most important jobs in creating a film. And if you don't know the name Robert Richardson, uh, you've definitely definitely seen his films. He's one of the greats of all time. He's won three Oscars, nominated nine times, and is most well-known for his collaborations, as I said, with three significant filmmakers, arguably three of the most significant filmmakers in the history of movie making. He shot the last bunch of Quentin Tarantino films, starting at Kill Bill all the way up to Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which we're obviously promoting here today on the podcast. He's been working with Martin Scorsese on films like uh, Hugo and The Aviator, bringing out The Dead and Shutter Island. Um, And he, most notably early in his career, really came to the fore working with Oliver Stone in, in arguably, I would say, one of the great runs of any filmmaker's career. Oliver Stone, who... They started working together on Salvador, uh, and then, you know, off the top of my head, through Wall Street, Platoon, JFK, Nixon, uh, Born on the Fourth of July. Like, th- these were like, this was Oliver and Robert at the top of their games, and um, a- a- and some of the, the most influential filmmaking for me as a, as a teenager when I watched those movies. So... Real, a real honor and distinct pleasure to talk to Robert, who uh, is a film, obviously a film buff, a film fan, a a, a master of his craft, and um, and just a pleasure to talk to. So, you know, this was this was a distinct honor. Um, I'm of course embarrassed because I feel like I, I name checked someone at the. What did I do? Oh yeah, we were talking about Oliver Stone. And I think I said that Oliver Stone wrote Patton. And of course, that that wasn't uh, that was that was for Francis Ford Coppola. So. Ugh, Josh, film geek, messed up. Right in front of one of his heroes. Oh my God, guys. Anyway, forgive me for that one. But other than that, this was a great chat. We talk about all of his major collaborations and some of the films that never were, including, you know, apropos, a lot of people, you know, always are talking about superhero movies, about the Batman film that Robert was going to shoot with Ben Affleck. Uh, Some really interesting insight into what that movie might have been. Um, So that's fascinating. Anyway, that's the main event today. This, of course, is our second conversation about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which is now out in theaters. We had Quentin on the podcast last week. Lots of great feedback on that one. Thank you, guys. And lots of great feedback, I should say, also for um, the on-camera MTV interview I did with Leonardo and Brad Pitt and Margot Robbie. That uh, was a real yeah, a real honor, and, and, and I'm thrilled that so many people have enjoyed watching that one. If you haven't seen it yet, check it out on MTV News' YouTube page. Uh, beyond that, I haven't talked to you guys about Comic-Con. I'm a little bit late because we pre-taped the Quentin one, but I will just say I'm still alive after Comic-Con, another year in the books, exhausting, insane. I think I interviewed like, I don't know what the final numbers were. I wrote it down somewhere. It was like 25 different sets of people. I did the casts of every like major TV show, not a ton of movie presence, I will say at Comic-Con this year. I interviewed the cast of Terminator and I interviewed the cast of Black Widow. But beyond that, and the cast of It was there as well, but beyond those three, it was not a huge movie year. Though I will say, maybe my favorite trailer drop, Top Gun, Top Gun Maverick, amazing. Can't wait. Um, so yeah, it was it was a great time at Comic Con. All of our interviews, um, most of them really have been put up, and I think they're still being put up on MTV News's YouTube page. There's like a ton of stuff there. An embarrassment of riches if you want to watch me asking uh, smart and silly questions to the casts of your favorite TV shows and movies. It's all up there. So check it out. Um, that will occupy you for a number of hours. Hell, it occupied me for a number of days, so the least you can do is watch it. Right, guys? Right? 
Okay, cool. Uh, all right, on to the main event. This conversation is with Robert Richardson. Don't worry, no spoilers for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. If you haven't seen it yet, you can listen to this first and just listen to a master of uh, filmmaking talk about his craft and and some of the major films in his career. And, and they're some of the major films of the last um, 30 years. So this is a, a conversation well worth checking out if you're as much of a movie fan as I am. Remember to review, rate, and subscribe to Happy, Sad, Confused. Spread the good word. And without any further ado, here's the great Robert Richardson. The great Robert Richardson is in my office. This is a distinct pleasure, sir. Thank you for coming by today. That's my pleasure. Um, you're the first cinematographer I've had on this podcast. I've talked to many, many, many uh, great directors. Um, and it's, it's, it's long overdue that I talked to a DP. And if, if it was gonna, the first one was going to be anybody, it was going to be you. Because um, your films have meant a lot to me uh, oh, throughout you. my life. Um, Why so long to get to DPs? I know. There, never enough justice for the DPs. Never. <laughs> well, maybe, maybe now we'll start a, a trend. Uh, congratulations on the new film, your latest collaboration with Quentin Tarantino, of course. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Um, I should have paused. Dot, dot, dot. In Hollywood. in Hollywood, which is what's so beautiful about concluding the film. Yes, to what you just said. Yes, the pause. Well, yes, and and, and we don't want to ruin the ending, no. but it, but it does. Well, anyway, we'll, we'll get to the movie. Let's talk about you first of all, and, and your life and career a little bit. Um, what do you, how do you explain to people, lay people, what you do? I generally say I just aim. You say what? I just aim the camera. You just aim the camera. <laughs> Uh, that's really what I say. I say. Other people bring everything to the front. Actors bring what they bring. Mm-hmm. I just take a camera, I look through the view piece, and I shoot. Yeah. Do you think, generally speaking, most people have the foggiest idea of what a... Not a vague clue. If you go to the average person, to know that a film might take... You're shooting 12 to 14 hours a day. You may shoot, the, particularly, like, say, this film. You're 12 to 14 hours a day. You're shooting over 100 days. Yeah. Uh, and you do three months or four months of prep to get prepared for it. Uh, no one has that idea that, that work in film is that complex. Yeah. So, okay, so when, so when you're growing up, most, I, most kids don't grow up uh, presumably saying, I want to be a cinematographer, I want to be a DP. Um, what was your awareness, your, your knowledge of film as a kid? Was, was film a big part of your household? And, and when did you kind of learn what a director, let alone a DP, did? Good question. I think that uh, my teens, I wanted to be a still photographer. I mm-hmm. started to shoot a lot with a camera. I always had it in my hands. Um, I was sent away to a private school because I wasn't the best of brothers, and one of the brothers had to be separated. And, <laughs> There's always one. And I was the one that was chosen. Um, as a result, I got isolated. So exposure to the world, because I was sitting in the middle of New Hampshire in a private school that didn't have access. But... What we did do is uh, we were able to see, they took us on a field trip, 2001, which is one of the first large experiences of, of a cinema that I had seen, and Godfather. And those two absolutely shook it up. Yeah. Now, knowing that I wanted, do I want to do this? How do I want to pursue film? I didn't know at that time at all. As a child, of course, I'd gone to any film that would come to a local theater. As a kid, my mother would every birthday bring us uh, Disney films like Dumbo or... Sure. You know, at Setterson, and she projected them on 16 millimeter for us at the birthday party. So my life did start with those type of films. Then any film that I could, was appropriate, I would go to. Yeah. But as a love and as a future, I didn't see it. Uh, I went to University of Vermont a little later on and decided that in the University of Vermont, I was going to study oceanography. Great choice for a landlocked. <laughs> How on the list of potential career options did that possibly emerge? Well, because they come from Cape Cod and okay. there's Woods Hole. Got it. So uh, somehow that okay. was a part. There's something. Okay. There's a little link. But what happened was I realized immediately this is an insane concept, landlocked oceanography. you got to be, you are so stupid. It was the only, only place I could get into anyway. Nobody wanted me. Mm-hmm. So I started to take film courses. And as I was taking film courses and I was working with a friend and I started to watch uh, Berkman films, that's when I knew this is where I want to go. Just that the level of artistry, the level of craftsmanship, the 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 writing, yeah, and Bergman with a very tight group created 
so many films that were astoundingly brilliant. And that just led me more into film. And so I dropped out of all courses, except for those that were involved with either theory, or in any case, if you had practical, I'd do practical. So by the time you, 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 you find this, this newfound love affair, or this rekindled kind of expanded love affair, um, you know, your first jobs, from what I gather, um, were in docks. I mean, that was really where you made your bones before starting to collaborate with Oliver, Oliver Stone. Um, was that happenstance, or was that sort of where the work was, or? Uh, I went to AFI, American Film Institute, sure. and out of AFI, I ended up meeting a few people that, various people, Juan Ruiz Anchia, who's a uh, very well-known DP, close range, other films like that, and he was going on to make a movie, and he brought me on as a camera assistant. Mm. Uh, it was an error of judgment on my part. Uh, I'm a terrible camera assistant. But I was not well paid, which of course made them want me more, even though my faults were large. Mm -hmm. And it was with Dennis Hopper, and uh, Begus Luna was a director, reborn. I did sort of fail in a lot of ways. I got into a slight habit that you don't really want to get into as a camera assistant because your eyesight starts to go away. Mm -hmm. One of my nostrils wasn't working properly. And, Got it. And I was in a zone of sort of helping Dennis at the same time in the same zone. I'm putting so, it all together. Okay. Yeah, and it was a low T stop. And then this relationship happened with a producer's girlfriend. Things weren't really proper. With that. This is the Robert I want to talk to, that guy back in the day. <laughs> yeah, so that didn't with Dennis work. Hopper with Living His Life. <laughs> Living life and should have been fired. But, it, but Juan took me one day. We were sitting in a, a pool, and uh, he said, uh, what do you want to do? You want to be a camera assistant, a gaffer, or what? And I said, I want to be a DP. He said, well, you need to stop everything you're doing and just focus. So shortly after that, I got a call from another friend that went to Tom Richmond, who's another director of photography that was at AFI. And he said, I, have the, I was offered this film in El Salvador, but I don't want to go. Would you be willing to meet the director, which is Jeff Harmon? Jeff came to visit me because I said yes. I was painting the walls similar to the color of your, <laughs> your office, the pink. I asked him what he thought of the color. That was what sold him on me. He said, you know, I love this salmon. It's really beautiful. <laughs> he said, do you think you can do it if you go to war? And that is absolutely where it started. And I said yes. And, of course, there were various stories about whether I succeeded or not. But I stayed there and shot with the right wing because he's American. And we were shooting the right wing, the death squads, et cetera, and the army. And then the left wing was being shot by an English director with a French crew. They ended up being the, the French crew got chased out through Guatemala, got caught. And so I ended up shooting both sides of, of this particular front line piece. That was the first doc, really, that. And that documentary led to Salvador. Which, I mean, yeah, I mean, it's like if there's somebody meant to be shooting Salvador with Oliver Stone, you've just listed, you have the, you have the, you have the only resume to do that at the time. Despite maybe your, you know, lack of experience, you had the right experience. And Oliver, I mean, you know, we'll get to your collaboration with, with Oliver in a significant way because you really were his main collaborator on like the great run of Oliver Stone yeah, films. Very like, fortunately, I mean, unbelievable. Um, but he wasn't much of anything at the time. Well, he had, he, he had directed a film, The Hand, as I but recall. He also won an Oscar. Oh, okay, for writing for, for writing. Patton for uh, you know, uh, and yeah. well, uh, you have Midnight Express. Sure, Midnight Express. Yeah, rather, and yeah, then yeah. you have uh, Scarface. Right. So as being nobody, I'd fair say... Enough, fair enough, As a director, I would as say. As a director, yes. he hadn't hit it yet. Yes. He'd done hand, and, uh, but, and this was his first. It was the most fascinating first meeting. Was he... Like, yeah, who was he then? Because he's this... He's sitting at a desk just like you yeah. are. Leather jacket, tied up to the neck, sweat. And, you know, he's a, he's a large man. Yeah. There was no air conditioning in this small little office. It was a tiny little office. There was no money in the movie. It was, like, what, a million dollars or less than a million dollars, something like that. And... I'm looking at him like, oh, my God. He's sweating <laughs> profusely. Why don't you take your leather jacket off? I mean, Oliver. And I didn't really know him at that point. He asked me one simple question. Can you intercut a long lens with a wide lens? I said, sure, why not? Go next door and talk to the producer. We'll see what, what they can work out in terms of money, and then I'll get back to you see whether or not we make this movie. It was virtually like that. There was a few more questions, but not a great deal. A little bit talk about Salvador, what it was like to experience it, who I shot with, who I didn't. Yeah. And uh, that was the opportunity that really of a lifetime. And 
that led to Platoon. Platoon was the next one, which, um, yeah, I mean, uh, you know, we can go into all of these in great detail, obviously, so we'll have to skip around. But Platoon, I mean, what, uh, what, among many things that strike me about Platoon is, like, there's the shadow, especially at that time, I would think, of Apocalypse Now over any war film. Was, there a, was, that, was that a significant discussion point on, like, how to differentiate? How is this film going to look and feel different than... Again, you're looking at a budget that's vastly different. Sure. I loved Apocalypse Now. I still love Apocalypse Now. I've seen the film. I, I, I can't even count the number of times I've seen the film, yeah. as well as the Redux. Uh, I think Storrow is one of our greatest cinematographers in the business, which you should have interviewed him. Um, <laughs> just to say. I mean, <laughs> just take the compliment that you're the first. I do, Accept I do, it. But I love, love it. And it wasn't actually an element in our discussion because yeah. he won a grunt level. Uh, he wanted to be in the trenches, not floating on the water or the sort of hallucinogenic approach. It was based on his own personal experiences. Right, you're in the shoes of that yeah, recruit. He, he yeah. wanted to be on the ground. Yeah. And uh, I don't think we could have done it any other way at that time in our career. When you look at Coppola, he had been making films for a number of years. Um, so he was at different level in terms of his creativity and yeah. also he, he was truly climaxing in, in a massive way and his wife made an amazing documentary. documentary yeah um but uh so no it wasn't a part of our discussions the um and, th and then you go you go immediately into another like uh, flat out classic Wall Street, which is like the <laughs> now stands as like for like the quintessential document of the eighties. Right. I mean, I grew up in in New York. I was like a kid at that time, but like it does capture that. Um, I mean, you have even like the iconic scene of the eighties, which is Michael Douglas with the largest phone ever on a beach walking. Congratulations, you captured the eighties in one image, basically right there. <laughs> uh, and also, greed is good. Greed is good. I mean, th those those um. The energy of those scenes of, uh, you know, I think of like Bud Fox getting the call from Gecko right. and, and just the energy both on the floor the and camera, the constantly it? moving camera. Yeah, um, it was very shark-like. I mean, our intention on that was to move that camera in the way a shark would move, just constantly circling until you hit the prey. Yeah. Um, never stopping, trying never to stop. And uh, that, that was a pretty remarkable slip for me. I, I, Although Platoon was emotionally more charged for me, um, particularly that last moment with Charlie as he goes off in the helicopter and his voiceover comes up. And, and also the experience itself was monumental. Yeah. With Wall Street, I was a little bit separate. I didn't know New York that well. or That comes more from, you know, obviously Oliver knows his world very well because that's where he grew. Right. Father was a stockbroker, I believe. Yes. Dedicated to him, as I recall. Um, yeah, and then, I mean, just like moving uh, through a couple of these, I mean, Born on the Fourth of July, an amazing film, um, The Doors. Uh, but, I mean, the, the film that really, I mean, the reason you're here in many ways for me and the reason I do what I do in some ways is JFK. J right. I mean, I saw JFK, I think, when I was like probably 16 or 17. Right. And so, I, you know, I wasn't a kid, but it was a next level experience. Right. Walking out of that theater, I didn't know what I had just seen. It was just uh, an assault on the senses. Um, what was the, I mean, what, was that all in the script? Was that in the conversations with, with Oliver in terms of like using different film formats, in terms of what the, what the intent was um, to put an audience through on that one? On that film... Because of Zabruder, the Zabruder work was the heart. And so, and since it was shot on 8mm, we backed out of that. And that was a centerpiece. And so then we decided, okay, this is going to be our, for us, 8 or Super 8 world when you're trying to capture it. And then when we're working from different perspectives that are maybe uh, imagined and not seen, we would go into black and white in different levels or 16 or 35, yep. depending upon the grain and the structure we wanted to right. do it and how much of a, it's a hypothesis. Right, or, these imagined scenes perhaps or not of, of Oswald, et cetera, plot, the plotting, et cetera. Yeah, yeah, totally. And also a, a brilliant editor, Hank Corwin, uh, was involved in, he was a close friend at that time and I introduced him to Oliver. He's not listed as an editor on the movie, except for an additional editor. But he was very much responsible for that opening section with the, you know, amazing. You know, it's like it's and that if you look at that also, that opening yeah. is in fact, NBK. It is yes. U turn. Yes. It 
his movement, and that's also how you can see it's all starting to shift into, oh, let's utilize formats, mm. let's use textures. Right. Also, the work with Errol Morris, with that's cheap and out of control. Yes. Slipping into the same sort of zones of trying to bring textures to us. Natural born killers, yes. Yeah. So if like if uh, if JFK was assault on the senses, I don't even know what you used to say about natural born killers, which was just like a, a next level, and 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 arguably hasn't been matched in whatever you and Oliver were going for since. I know it was it was maybe the uh, arguably the toughest shoot of your career for a number of reasons. Is that fair to say? Emotionally, it was an extraordinarily difficult period of time. My uh, wife was having our second child and she had preeclampsia and the child wanted to get out of the body, which basically means the child wanted to get out of the body. And uh, she went into a freeze out, basically all of her units stopped, right. kidney, liver. Uh, we were doing midwife because we wanted to have a water birth. Our first child was water birth, Kanchen, and this is Maya. And uh, so she almost died in the process. I had to prepare. My oldest daughter was only three years old for the death of her mother, which was extremely complicated uh, to do and to think about how you're going to do that with somebody. Yeah. So I shot, they allowed me, she was an intensive care unit, to bring our baby, Maya, who was not much more than four and a half pounds, and the nurse brought her to the mother and I filmed it so that Conchin, when I went home and showed it to her, would see that her mother was alive and holding so it wasn't as if the mother had died right and she might forever hold her her sister responsible for the death well they both did survive which is a good side of this i could go on with that story but it not a wasn't pretty but oliver was at a party with his wife and at that time elizabeth and uh elizabeth said that uh, bob's you know my nurse in the hospital and uh she's in intensive care and she might pass away. Oliver made some brotherly remark, which was Elizabeth then told my wife, which was, oh, well, Bob won't have any problem getting another wife. Wow. Now, <laughs> I don't know if that's true, but what it did do is it did make it extraordinarily difficult to make that film because then my wife said, if you make that film, I want a divorce. And I went on a scout with Oliver, and I'm out there, and I said, I can't make the movie with you, Oliver. And he goes, why? I said, and I told him a story. He said, and he was divorcing his wife. So I said, I can't. And he goes, I can't have two divorces at once. <laughs> and I, I didn't want to give the film up. Sure. I, I, brothers are brothers. I mean, that attitude is really out of, It's not, he didn't say that in a mean way. He just said it out of what we do when you're hanging out with friends and a friend falls and hits the ground and gets hurt, you tend to giggle. Yeah. You know, I mean, I'm not telling about hurt, terribly hurt, but like, you know, they fall, they bruise, we laugh. And I think that's all that was with Oliver was more or less that element. And cause we had a great relationship. We're very, very close. Does that, I mean, you know, we often talk about like directors, like their lives being imprinted upon a film. I'm curious, like this is a broader question, but also a kind of a micro question for natural born killers. Like, do you see yourself in that film? For instance, like you were going through some really dark stuff around that film. Is that reflected in the Highly. way you shot that film? And certain things I asked Oliver to include certain things. Um, a drunk father, which is my life. And one of the most disturbing drunk fathers ever in a film. As but, a, no, Rod that's a different... That, that, okay, not, not Rodney? Not, not Rodney. There's, okay. a, there's a flashback to a man oh, okay. that picks up a dog and throws a dog. Also pretty disturbing. <laughs> and that was really out of my own life. Wow, and, okay. And so when we talked about making the movie, I asked if there were things we could include because I said, let's try to make this movie in a way which hasn't been made before. Yeah. And, uh, and that included the green screens. Yeah. And then I went across the country shooting... Uh, travel material off the back of a truck, dead animals on the side of the road, trains, yep. mountains, etc. And a lot of those were utilized. And then Hank and myself and Oliver all put together things we thought were the evils of the world, whether it was the beating of seals and women wearing furs and this and that and this and that. And so a lot of those got placed in there. And of course it influenced my, my psyche tremendously to make this movie. It's, yeah. My sleep patterns were horrible. Uh, I was up on edge. Uh, I broke a hand on one, one scene because uh, of the violence of which I had to hit the cell. Um, 
and one time I was shooting side angle on a, on Tommy Lee Jones as he's walking through the, the into the prison, uh, and I was side while Larry McConkie was shooting steady cam from the front, and I just happened to walk right into a, a cell. I'm mean, not a cell, but a, a gate, a prison gate, and the camera lens. Uh, camera IP's cut into my eye, and I had this giant golf ball of blood. And I'm looking at Oliver, and he's like, okay. Oh, yeah, I'm sure he loved it, <laughs> in a way. Like, I, I don't know, love, but you definitely thought, well, you put your all into that one. I mean, I can see why you guys got along for, for so long and so well, and yet you then, the way you worked together on U-Turn, but it's been some time now. You haven't worked together, and from what I gather, there was a bit of a falling out related to you working with Marty. You went off to work with Scorsese. Oh, yeah, on uh, Bringing Out the Dead, I... I started uh, Oliver's film, and we uh, did tests with uh, Puff Daddy mm. as a quarterback. Right, right. Remember that, yeah. And that he didn't fell work. out pretty late, yeah. And it didn't work out. Yeah. And so the film got postponed while I was looking for somebody else to play the role. Wait, you could be like the one person to confirm this very old rumor. Was it because he couldn't throw a football? It's because his football throwing wasn't as strong as you would anticipate it should be for a major league quarterback. <laughs> very, very much a diplomat. Okay, fair enough. I wanted to clear that up before we went further. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and, and so we uh, we split ways. He was upset. It was like it's crossing a line, and I and that line was too much of a line for him to accept. Yeah. And uh, it ended our relationship until Pinkville. Which also came very close, as I recall. That was shut down very close to production. Two weeks, I think. Yeah. We had gear, those in, in transit, and then Bruce pulled out. And, right, Bruce uh, Willis. And ended that yeah. film, and that would have been nice for me to resurrect that relationship. Got John it. Killick was a producer on that. So so nothing since. That was that was the close call recently. No, we had, we're, we're talking about working together on a, on a project. It's, uh, it's an element. I can't talk a lot about it, but it's for JFK. Around the original film, you're saying? like a, It's, docu- it's, do- it's going to be a documentary with interviews on n- new material that's been found since that time. Wow. Okay. I will look forward to that. Um, Scorsese, uh, another key collaborator. Um, I guess the first collaboration was on Casino. Casino. Which is another classic. Um, so, I mean, you know, uh, who knows more about film, Marty or, or Tarantino? <laughs> You've got two of the masters right there. Uh, I would say... Marty knows more A. Right. Quinn, more B, or genre-specific. Right, he's the grindhouse, you know, Asian cinema, et cetera, yeah, right. yeah. And also, Quinn knows everything. Yeah. I, I mean, Quinn has a memory for lines. He's a memory for... I, so I, he was on the podcast last week, and uh, he came in and he, he remembered what where I ranked Hateful Eight on my top ten list. <laughs> I mean, it, it's he's a, he's a savant. Yeah, he is, and he can. Re, he will sit there and like Remar will be there, and I go, "Oh, I remember that line," and he'll throw out the line that he said in the movie right. that Remar can't even vaguely remember, right. or Kurt, or anyone. He's amazing in terms of his, his memory of, of dialogue yeah. and scenes as well. It's not just yeah. You know, he knows cinema. I think probably more than anybody that I've encountered. So, okay, before we get to Quentin, so what, I mean, you've worked with what, Marty, like four, four or five times, I want to say, including Hugo, The Aviator, you've won Oscars with him, Bringing Out the Dead. Shutter Island. Shutter Island. I love Shutter Island, by the way. Um, I mean, it's a very simple question, but like, what, is there a way to characterize what makes him the next level, like arguably the greatest filmmaker of our time? Like, uh, how do you, well, it's difficult when you walk out of movies like, first one I saw of his was Mean Streets. And that was a fundamental movie for me in terms of the way I saw cinema today as changing. And uh, and then you go to Raging Bull and Taxi Driver. He carries that sensibility in all of his work when he's that deeply involved. Casino was very similar. Highly devoted. For example, at a certain point, I've worked with Oliver quite a bit. So he and I got to a point where I would do the script and put as many shots down as I could. Yeah. And then he'd do his, and I'd hand him mine. More likely than not, he wouldn't like my work. But it was an attempt to really get us to have a conversation. Sure, I got it. So I asked if I could do that with Marty, sent him a few set of pages, and producer said yes, and uh, I did send it off. And then about two days later, I'm told i got to come into the office. Marty wants to talk to me. 
And Barbara DeFina was a producer at that point. She said to me, Marty's very upset. I said, well, what is Marty upset about? He didn't appreciate the notes. But Barbara, you told me I could send them. Marty gets on the phone. Uh, Bob, I appreciate that you sent the notes. I have not looked at them, nor will I ever look at them. <laughs> I am writing the script until I complete the script to my satisfaction. Only at that point will I then go into it and devise shots for it. And when I do that, I'll hand you a script that has every shot in the film, which is exactly what happened. So you were, so in, in a case of working with someone like Marty, it sounds like it's more of like your task is to execute to the utmost ability his vision. Like he knows exactly what he wants, and that must be hugely rewarding because he's a genius. But same with Gwen. But so 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 Oliver, Oliver's, Oliver, more collaborative, like to, to a little say, more collaborative, right? But again, you know. Oliver and Quinn are, are, are extremely similar in the sense that both are writers and directors. Right. Oliver's written most of his material. He's collaborated with some people. Marty hasn't written most of his material. He generally collaborates with pulls from other people. Right. And I think there's a, you know, for Quentin, he makes an exception with Marty. But in general, his perspective is the only real director is a writer-director. Right. They own their material. Quinn visualized Once Upon a Time for five years. Right. I mean... He knows everything he wants. You're not going to. There's no. You're not having an argument or discussion about how you. It's fully formed in his eye. By the time he gets a set, he knows exactly. And when he comes to set, he brings all the shot lists. Right. Marty provides it ahead of time. He does a whole movie, and then he sees a whole movie in this round. But as Marty says, I generally do this from the perspective of a studio. So I might have a camera that's. 30 feet in the air or 20 feet in the air and it moves down. But then on location, you find you're going to get nine feet up. Yeah. And so he's willing to make shifts in the concepts, but he still wants his vision. Executed, vision. Yeah. yeah. And uh, extraordinarily specific about it. He is Hugo is probably the only film you've ever shot in, in 3D. And Mar- yes, one. <laughs> Right. I don't think anyone shoots in 3D anymore. Well, I was going to say, there was that time after Avatar where, like, everybody... And a lot of it was post-converted, obviously. It wasn't. Herzog. Did Herzog do... He did a doc, right? Yes, exactly. And I think... uh, What was the one uh, about Nick that... uh, That was shot in 3D. Okay. The documentary about Nick, uh, you know... Oh, I'll remember. All good, all good. No worries. So, but yeah, the point is, yeah, there, there was that spate of like, suddenly it felt like everyone was going to do 3D. Then it was like, oh no, everyone's just going to do shitty post-converted 3D. Um, was that a unique and amazing challenge? I mean, it was the right Huge. kind. Yeah, I would think. And, and it was phenomenal because you're dealing with a director with an extraordinarily visual mind. Yeah. And yet, you neither one of us had the experience to be able to anticipate what a change in I.O., or what a change in, you know, how strong you push or how strong you don't push something. And also what color does. And so we were devising shots that, that were phenomenal because you were look at them on a 3D screen with your glasses. You go, all right, now what can I do to make that better? Right. And uh, do I want it that strong? Where do I want, where, where do I want the focus? Where do you want, how do you, it was, it was an, it was a magical experience. At the time, I remember I, it's the only time I've ever interviewed Scorsese and he was like suddenly all in. He was like, I'm only going to shoot things in 3d. Of course that hasn't happened since yeah. uh, probably partially due to financial considerations, et cetera. But yeah, it's easier to post. Yeah. Um, so, okay. So the Quentin collaboration, we've already alluded to a bit of this, but it begins on the Kill Bill film films. However, do you consider it one film or two films? <laughs> you shot one I, film. I, I, I shot one film. Yeah. You shot one really big film. <laughs> I shot one big film and, uh, but it did become two. So do you, uh, ha- do you have, um, a favorite sequence that you shot on that one? I mean, I think of the finale of, of, uh, of Kill Bill volume one, which goes from black and white, the crazy 88s, that amazing action. And also sequence. in full color in Japan. Right. Right. Um, I, that's one of my favorite sequences completely. Yeah. I mean, you have to love that. I mean, there's so many other parts of it that I love as well yeah. within the film. But that was endless amounts of work. I also love the fight outside in the snow. Oh, which gorgeous. Which is like just it, yeah. brilliantly told and a phenomenal set. Well, also it goes from frenetic to just like very still and, and elegant. Yes. Yeah. Which is kind of what makes it work. Um. 
I could do an hour on Inglorious, which has, I think, four or five of the greatest scenes, like, ever. Yeah. <laughs> Opening? Opening sequence, the bar scene. Yeah. Um, those are probably two of my favorites, yeah. So, okay, so, again, you kind of alluded to this. In the script that you get from Quentin, are shots described in detail? Certain shots are always listed. Um, an attitude towards it, certainly. Yep. Uh, very detailed in terms of what makes up the sequence, what's in the props, what's in the production design, the look, etc. Yeah. Uh, and then there are pivotal shots that are listed, and it could be varying. Like, you know, he wants to move from, for a kill bill, come down the hallway, da 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 He had that shot, li- you know, that was already there. Yeah. And so certain elements like that are, are listed, or he'll, you know, like for me, when I was with him on, on Kill Bill, I didn't have that level of knowledge of that genre. Right. And I was living on Cape Cod, and I had my kids, and my wife was away on a retreat, a writing retreat. And so I kept the kids out of school. And we would just watch Lady Snowblood. And, you know, <laughs> and I got these young kids watching these movies like, yeah, okay. <laughs> my wife would call it, how did it go? Great, how was school? It was fantastic. They had a very good time. They're learning a lot. Learning an awful lot, <laughs> lying next to me, watching all of Quentin's movie. And there had to be like, I had 80 or 100 films from Quentin. And I'd just turn them on and I like, guys, we don't need to go to school. We should be doing this. No, that's a school in its own right. Um, how early does he bring you on into the process? Does he bring you on like, like once the script is locked and the cast is in? Or does he bring you into works in progress and to discuss uh, things? Bill was pretty well in, in the zone of starting. Right. I mean, I was probably... But that was your first time collaborating. Yeah, so, but eight I guess, nine weeks. Yeah, but, but I guess like by now, like, does he like key you in on like things prior to a no. Go project? Or well, is it... for example, with with uh, Once, I was brought in... I'm going to go five months out. Okay. But to read, not to be hired yet. Um, so I read the script. And... Uh, and what's the purpose of that? To, to get your take on it? To get your... No, he wants to let me know like what, what we're shooting. Got it. Uh, this is the film I'm going to make. And in that particular case, I was brought to the set. I mean, brought to his house. And he was in the living room. I was in the, kitchen, uh, in the dining room kitchen table. And he just watched me the entire time. Um, it was... <laughs> It nothing like having. I used. I've done it before, but usually I'm put in a back room. Oh my god! And this time it's like Quentin Tarantino watching you, <laughs> and, you know, and I'm making notes and I'm laughing, and he's just out of the corner of his eye, not staring. But he he gets he can tell what I you know right. know me very well. He can see the twinkle, or he knows when I'm getting into something, and I'm like got a smile on my face, and he read me through, and then just at the end I said, Quinn. Come on! What were you doing to me? I don't, you didn't even give me the end of the movie. Oh, you didn't? He didn't give you the end? There's no end. Quinn, you gotta give me the end. He says, "No, you'll get that later." <laughs> no, no, no! You gotta let me know what's gonna happen to the end. The ending was only served up in the production office, in a private room, and it was pulled from the safe. The last act. Wow. Only those that were absolutely that was absolutely necessary to know how to create for him were given the last act. Okay. Well, we're not going to reveal what happens, but that's fascinating. Yeah, I was, uh, as you were ta- describing Quentin watching you, I feel like nobody, and I appreciate this about him, I think nobody enjoys Quentin Tarantino movies more than Quentin Tarantino. And I kind of love that about him. Like, he loves it. Well, of course, he loves film. Yeah. The, the, the reason that all, I mean, like Oliver, you know, Marty and Quentin are, are brilliant, and also you know I work with John Sales has a very yes. similar approach too, and Errol has a very similar. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's because they are deeply in love with filmmaking and making the film that they're making at that moment. Yeah, and that passion is contagious. Yeah, that is the common denominator through most I, of the filmmakers you've have worked a with. Tough director, demanding of me certain things than a director who doesn't demand of me. Well, that sums up your, your collaborations. That's how I describe 90% of the people you worked with, probably. Yeah, and, and like, people always go, would you work with Tony Scott? Yes, I'll work with Tony. Yeah. I, like, why? I don't have a fear of a director. It's like, yeah. I'd love to work with Michael Mann. It's like, oh. you know, Paul Thomas Anderson. Like, I, I don't care how demanding somebody is. I'll find a way to right. work with their... Fincher. That's my job. The... Um, 
it struck me, I mean, watching this, there's so much that I love about this film in particular. I mean, it's, it's a really, it's a, you know, it's a love letter to a lot of things, but it, you photograph movie stars really well. It's like a great, like movie star role, especially, I mean, Leo's great, but I, I feel like Brad is like in full on movie star mode in this film. I, I feel like, you know, when he's like up on the roof, he's taking off his shirt. You're like, oh yeah, you're like the movie star of the last 50 years. <laughs> um, are there like certain, are there certain faces uh, actors that you like photographing? Well, I've worked with Brad three times and Leo four. Um, my relationship with both of them is one of complete trust and respect for their work. And of course I love shooting. I think Brad does have the star power. I think Leo has that same thing, but in this particular case, he played his role so well yeah. because he's a man at a mid-level zone and he plays it at that mid-level and it's, dropping yes and he's flailing he's he's, he's holding on his career is just it's just on by threads yeah and that to me is 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 vital but i also feel that the movie is a movie is about you and yes. myself and anybody that's in a career and that career moves to a certain level and then it makes shifts and you have to have the intuition and the brilliance to be able to know how to pocket yeah. what those shifts are he's seeing the world passing by literally they're like yeah he, and, and he doesn't know what to make of it he could have easily have shifted into a very positive attitude towards Italian cinema. Yes. He doesn't shift into that so easily. And there's more of a battle, whereas you see Brad floating into I don't see what's so bad about going to no, he's, live in Rome. He's living his Zen lifestyle. He'll, he'll be fine. And, and I think, yeah, that, that Zen approach is exactly what makes his, his, his character the one that has that life. He's a good opposite. Yeah. But the two of them together... Like watching, even just simply watching FBI. Yeah. Did you did you love especially? I I sense but Al's face as well. There's a life there, and yeah. I mean, I I went back just recently and did Panic, you know, Neil Park, and you know, it's like you start to go through all of his films. I went uh, into De Palma's work with him, which is you know, I love that Carlito's Way. Carlito's Way is amazing. And then you know, I shifted into another De Palma prior to that, which is Obsession, which isn't with him, but. Mm You know, I just decided, because a lot of those films were part of what what I did, like Obsession, it was more the zone of where I was going to look at Yep. for, I want to go back in time, but I didn't want that much diffusion, nor did Quinn, we wanted something that was tighter, actually it's a little closer to Carlito's way, you know, because it's tighter, and Burham shot that, and Zygmunt shot the other. Yeah. Do you... Um did anything? It, it, so you know, it's interesting because you 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 shoot the film, you deliver all this amazing footage, and then it's in the hands of the the filmmaker and the editor. And I don't know if you're involved. Do you ever? See, you're not in the edit room ever, right? So you're at the premiere or an early screening, and you see the film. How often, just generally speaking, first are you excited, happy with what you see, or are you always like, like 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 often I hear from an actor like, oh, they didn't use the, the take that I loved. I'm not quite that way. It's uh, with Oliver. I would, as we got as a relationship, I'd be I'd see earlier cuts in the editing room or mm-hmm. on the screen. He'd ask for some notes, or if I had notes, and you know, generally they're the very few because he's in the process. With Quinn, I, I was invited to the editing room on a number of the films to watch it on uh, on a Steinbeck or whatever he was using at the time, or the Abbott, and and we would go that process. And I would see it and then make notes of, or, or tell him what I thought and. Or we had a screening and he'd watch me, you know, like, oh, because <laughs> when I saw once, he showed me once, like the first maybe hour and it was a complete ride and I was like giddy and at, and we were at photo cam and at the very end he goes, well, we got a live one here <laughs> because so much, you know, so many of the people have been working so long, they didn't have those initial responses because it's brand new to me. I'd seen it. Yeah. I try not to think about my work because in truth, your work, my work. I don't like my work. So well, I've heard you say you don't go back and watch them ever. I don't like to go back and see my films. I mean, if I have to go to a screening, right. then I'll sit you know, and watch it. But I prefer not to see my work. It's always something that I feel I can do better. Do you... So Quentin always talks about the 10 and done thing. This is his ninth. Do you believe him? Do you think that he's only going to do one more? I, I, I hope... I think he'll do one more film for sure. I think then there'll be theater... Right. I think there'll be a book. Right. I wouldn't doubt that he writes for something like Netflix, something that might be 10 long. Right. I mean, because 
his mind is there. It's like, as opposed to get locked down into a three-hour movie or two-and-a-half-hour movie, why not tell the tale that's 10 hours or 15 hours long? Yeah. Uh, I he, think that's more his place in he, the future. He was telling me, uh, again, he has all these, like, he's a thousand ideas, obviously. He's like, Hans Wanda Mysteries, set in Nantucket. I was like, I will watch 10 hours of that on Netflix. <laughs> <laughs> Done. And Kill Bill 3. Kill, I mean, he said he just talked to Uma the other week. I mean, who knows what that'll be. Exactly. Uh, has he told you anything about Star Trek? That, I, I need, I kind of want to see that. Too. <laughs> I want to see the R version of Star Trek. I mean... Yeah, and I like Chris Pine quite a bit. Sure. So I'm sort of looking forward to seeing what he does in that. That'll be a shake-up. That could be fantastic. Absolutely. That'll be a wake-up. Definitely. A much-needed wake-up call for that franchise. Um, Although I love the last three. I, yes, I particularly like the first one. The first one, is, well, because you have his entering into. Yes. You know, he's being pulled into it. Yes. I, I, I really love that aspect of it. J.J. did, you know, well, he's a talent. Let's get it real. It's like... So you, so you consume a lot of, of film, both old and new. That you, this yeah. is so. What um, what inspires you nowadays? What in recent years has inspired you? I'm inspired by so many films. Yeah. I, mean, I also love. I mean, <clears throat> I'm good with virtually. You can give me any zone, any genre. I can find a romantic comedy and cry. <laughs> I mean, I can uh, you know five feet apart. I saw. Oh yeah. No, I I cried in five feet apart. I thought. Acting was really nice between them, and it was like false and stars. Like I can go to that. I like I love it. I mean, Shailene, unbelievable. And then I worked with Shailene on Adrift. Adrift, and, you yep. know, And when I did a Private War, I tried to shift entirely out of this sort of zone that I'm in. You know, just all pretty much natural light. And so I, I go, I can go anywhere. You've never shot on digital, have you? Quite a bit. You have. Yeah. A, well, Private War. Okay. Uh, Adrift. Okay. Okay. Breathe, I, breathe with Andy Circus. Got it. Okay. I, I guess I was thinking of the three, the three biggies that we were talking. The collaborators. I guess. Oh, no, um, was Hugo digital? Hugo by, by necessity. Digital, yeah. Yeah. By, by necessity, and uh, with Oliver, we never got to digital. Yeah. Although we would be shooting digital now if we were working together, and Marty's shooting digital now. And does it bother bother you at all, or you as? No, I don't. Not I, at I'm, all. I'm very open. I find that the art of both digital and and film have their pluses and their minuses. Yeah. Um, a real great plus for film is that you are required to stop after 10 minutes, unless you're doing Super 35 or you're doing two perf, and you get longer periods of time, but you can't just roll it. Yeah, you can wear an actor out with digital. You can all wear day. out, yeah. and, and, and maybe you get great things. Yeah. And, but I like the idea that you have to stop, and also, but I do love digital for so many other reasons, because you can grade, uh, almost on the set if you have a grader. Yep. I love that aspect that I can create a better set of dailies for someone. But in film you can do it too because we're all going DIs. Right. I mean, this film went DI, uh, whereas Hateful was a complete chemical finish, Right. which is very old school. Right. Um, do you... Okay, so you mentioned... It's interesting. You mentioned Pink, Pinkville. That was one that got away. Is there any other project that came that close that, that got away that still gnaws at you that you almost had no that, no i although i was told the other day that i was shooting batman when i woke up and <laughs> i heard that so i had to write matt and said and i have never met matt oh no so i wrote matt and said oh matt i said i woke up this morning here that i'm shooting your movie it's such a delight i wish you know you had told me when do we start when do we start <laughs> and then they of course they come out with a new one with with greg greg fraser's doing it right yeah, yeah. now we have it ah and i wrote him again i said I can't believe I sent him. A, I sent him the, the Hollywood, whatever came out, and I said, "This is unfair, Matt." This is an emotional roller coaster. Yeah, I said, but I, I don't know, Matt. But yeah, no, I wanted to shoot Batman with uh, with Ben because that was the next film. We right, because you had done Live by Night with him. Yeah, right. which I I adore shooting with. You know, that was an, that was a great experience for me with Ben, and uh, I think highly underappreciated. That's a digital film. That was the Area Area sixty five. Got it. Did you, how far down the road on Ben's Batman did you get? Did you have a script? Did you, were you working on? Th there were, there was a script, but not, not a loved script. Got it. There were a lot of, there was a lot of work that he was doing to it. He was trying to change it. And uh, then he made the decision to do, as you know, uh, Gone Girl. And, right. So. What well, were there reference points? I'm, uh, I'm just curious, like, for what that, the look of that film would have been to differentiate it from previous Batman films? Well, he was going more into the insanity aspects. Uh-huh. 
So I think you would have seen something a little darker than what we've seen in the past and more into the individual what's in, who's inside Batman. Right. What element may be sane and what element actually may not be sane. So he was entering into a little more of the Arkham. It's like, you know, he's going into where you keep everyone who's bad and everyone that's shifted and Batman. So that whole aspect was sort of, it was very fascinating yeah. was to go to the darker side of Batman. Yeah, we never. I mean, I'm a comic book geek, as you can imagine. Yeah. We've never really seen Arkham Asylum. No, and that's where we were going. That would have been cool. It was like, and you'd read it and go like, oh, and who's, ooh. It's like, <laughs> it's like so I was very, very interested in that one. Yeah, and I'm buddies with Joe Manganiello, who I guess was going to be Deathstroke, who I think was going to be one of the key antagonists in that one. What yeah. might have been? What, what might have been? Um, so a superhero film is still something that just like, that would intrigue you. That's I would love to do. It's I mean, what, what's being made now. Why not give, try your hand at it? Yeah, I mean, I met with Tim Burton to do Superman. Oh, my God. <laughs> he, he had Nick that, Cage of at course. the time. And I remember I sat with him, and I said, you know, wouldn't it be interesting if we could actually shoot him flying? Like, drop him from an airplane. <laughs> so that you get the real movement of wind on a face in a dive. Yeah. And he was like, oh, that would be Great. <laughs> and we were thinking about it, like, but of course you know that studio's not going to let that one happen. But I did think just oh. capturing that sense of flight. Would... Yeah. Make it happen with Tom Cruise. He's up for it. He'll do it. Yeah, he would do it. <laughs> also, I, recently I went to see John Wick. I love John Wick. Yeah. I mean, I saw the three in the theater just recently. It's like, I saw Spider-Man as well, but it's a... I thought John Wick 3. I can't think you can kill more people. <laughs> I don't think, I think they've tapped out. they tapped out. How can you get more people? I mean, an entire city hunting them down. I love it. And I love Keanu because he's got that face. It's like from Matrix. What, what's happening with him? Like, he's what real, drugs he's is ruling he our planet. Because, I, know, yeah. I want those. He's preserved in he's oil preserved. Away. I don't know what's happening. Um, I could talk to you for hours. I'm quite, I, as I said, long overdue in having a, a DP on the, this show. But... Um, I'm so pleased it was you that was the first because you've you've meant a lot to my love of film over the years and I'm so thrilled that you're continuing your collaboration with Quentin on this one. Once Upon a Time, dot, 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 in Hollywood is the film. Everybody check it out. It's a beautiful uh, piece of work that don't, you don't need to know about the third act. Don't worry about the third act. Just watch the first two thirds and then be shocked and amazed. But it's, it's, a, it's actually just like a... It's a masterpiece. It's a, it is. It's one of his best and that's saying a lot. Um, yeah. Yeah, I don't know how much more, what more to say, except it's a great Quentin Tarantino film, and that's all you should know. Yeah, and have a little bit more laid-back attitude. Yeah, it's a hangout it. film. It's yeah. not going to be a, a strong narrative running you through as much as you're going to have to enjoy or enjoy the process. Don't search for the narrative as much as you would. And live with these characters, and, and luckily they're amazing, great characters. And beautifully characters. weaved together. Yeah. Uh, with a phenomenal soundtrack from KHJ. I mean... Which is one of the few characters that we don't often talk about in the movie right. is that, that KHJ keeps you entirely within 1969 yep. because it plays nonstop throughout the film. So it links every single character. Amazing. Uh, I'll see it at least a few more times on the big screen. Uh, thank you so much for your time today. A real My pleasure. pleasure. Thanks for having me. And so ends another edition of Happy, Sad, Confused. Remember to review, rate, and subscribe to this show on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm a big podcast person. I'm Daisy Ridley, and I definitely wasn't pressured to do this by Josh. <laughs>